royal families are like the pugs of the human world. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kula, and with me as always are Elena Papianis. Hello, hello, hello. And Nathan Radke. Also, hello. You know, I can't believe that our podcast has been going for, what, three years now? Yeah. And we still haven't covered all the major conspiracies. I mean, there's like really big ones that we haven't talked about yet. And there's some really, really tiny ones that I think only I had ever heard of that we have covered. That's true. That's right. <laughs> we have a lot of niche mini episodes, and then we've, we've missed all some of the big ones. This is a really big one. We are um, making up for missing one of the really big ones by talking about it today. We are going to talk about the death and potential murder of Princess Diana, Princess of Wales. Now, I'm... I have to admit, when it comes to celebrity conspiracies, I usually take a back seat. And I'm going to let Elena and Nathan really take the lead on this one because they're sitting in front of reams and reams of documents and reports and eyewitness accounts and testimonials and all kinds of things. I remember, all I remember was being in my parents' living room and seeing the news and just being completely shocked. Like it, it felt so weird that she no longer existed. You know what I mean? In this life, it was, I just remember the, the surprise. I don't remember much after that, but I remember seeing it kind of on the screen in their living room and just being totally like, I just could not compute it in a way. Well, at the time she was maybe, well, I mean, she was definitely one of, she might have been the most famous person on earth at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And she was such a kind of unique figure in that sense, too, because she was a part of the royal family, yet kind of seemingly nothing like them all at the same time. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that she was so beloved, which isn't something that you can necessarily say about most of the other members of the royal family, which is something that I think will probably show up in this podcast. There's a bunch of things that are going to probably show up in this podcast, because this isn't just a story of what happened in that tunnel. It's also the story of our relationship to celebrity. It's also the story of the relationship between power and corruption. It's also, I think, a story not just about Princess Diana, but about us, about like, our relationship to things like chaos and our relationship to things like control. And so for that reason, I wanted to say something that I don't think I've ever said before, and I will likely never say again. I would like to start this podcast by reading a short poem. Hmm, that's lovely. Is, is it one that you wrote yourself, Nathan? It is not. I did okay. not write this poem. And, and I want to read it, and then I want to move on without comment, but then I want to return to it at the end of the podcast and sort of revisit this poem and why I think it's important to this particular conspiracy. Okay, the poem is called For Want of a Nail. It goes like this. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. 
I want to, I'll come back to that at the end of today's episode. I just sort of wanted to plant it at the beginning to get it in people's heads, because I think the message of this poem is kind of an important message having to do with this idea of chaos and control. But we'll come back to it. For now, why don't we get into a bit of the history? Who was Princess Diana Spencer? Okay, so I'm going to cover some of that. So Diana was born into a family. um, Well, her dad's name was John. Her mother's name was Frances. He was noble, but kind of didn't have a lot of money. And she was the opposite. She had money, but wasn't noble. So we think of Diana as like the princess of the people too, but she very much was born into kind of uh, some noble nobility in her family. And, And her family would frequently, they were like, quote unquote, close neighbors of the royals in a way as though um, like one of their, where they lived was, uh, I don't know how many miles away. And they would often even growing up, go over and um, spend holidays and go watch movies and do things with uh, the royal family. So she wasn't like she was just taken from some like suburb in the UK somewhere. This was really sad. Sorry. What's that? Can I just interject something? Because yeah. it, it might not be obvious to everybody. It was, certainly wasn't obvious to me is that the royal family and most royals are generally only supposed to marry other royals. So it becomes important that she is in some way connected to royalty because otherwise she wouldn't be a legitimate potential wife. Completely, because she needed to be vetted. They needed to know where she came from. They needed to know who her boyfriends had been. They needed to know pretty much every detail about her um, because she needed to be the perfect candidate. Uh, This is something that often comes up when we talk about royal families and sort of rant about them. Royal families are like the pugs of the human world. (laughs) Yeah. This idea of purity. And I mean, anytime you hear somebody talk about purity, you know something awful is going to happen anyway, because the idea of purity is is so flawed at its heart. But this idea that you have to sort of keep the bloodlines pure and you have to marry people to basically their relatives. This is why you end up with like pugs as an animal are extremely pure. They have very pure bloodlines and they can also barely survive. Like anytime you watch a pug dog, it's basically struggling to live. They can't breathe. Their eyeballs fall out. When they eat, they fall over. And the royal family, after years and years of selective inbreeding, has basically managed to turn themselves into like human pugs. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. No, I mean, you're not wrong. So, okay. So we'll probably get back to this idea of how kind of constructed all of this is within the royal family and all these expectations. But... Diana, basically her parents really wanted to have a boy. They had two girls, then a boy who actually passed away. And then um, Diana was born in July 1st, 1961. And one of her first memories really is of kind of being a disappointment um, because she was not like the boy that they had hoped for. And so this is, I mean, there's so much about Diana, that makes her a sympathetic figure. And when I learned this, this was definitely added to that list of things that I already knew about. Um, Because she really did struggle, as you you could see when she was even a public figure, like she struggled with issues of worthiness. And um, like she suffered from bulimia. She only sort of grew into the kind of confident, self-assured woman that we knew, basically right before she was, right before she died. Well, she married Prince Charles when she was only 20. He was 33. And I didn't even realize that, which kind of makes it all creepy too, because really 
uh, I think the first time they might have met, she was like five or something too when she was little. But then it was like maybe when she was 16, I think was the second time. Again, when we go back to the royals and their expectations, it was like they wanted someone who hadn't been sort of tainted by previous relationships. Uh, they wanted to know if she was a virgin or not. More they purity wanted, rhetoric. Yeah, they wanted her to be fertile so she could bear lots of children and the next king. And right, so there's all these kind of um, expectations wrapped up in it. And at the same time, it's sort of sold to us as the fairy tale wedding. Absolutely. She, so she grew up in this kind of emotionally cold home, um, yet materially, she had pretty much everything she probably needed. But it was very uh, proper as well, like the kids ate separately from the parents. And then her parents start fighting. Uh, I don't know, I forget how old Diana was when this happened, um, but they ended up getting divorced. And then actually for a while she lives a relatively kind of more normal life when her, her mom moves to London and she lives there with her for a while. Um, but then her father, once the, the divorce is official, again, because of English laws, he gets the children. So they go and move back to him uh, with him, uh, which her mother is devastated about. And she has to witness that kind of emotional trauma that her, that her mother goes through every time she has to say goodbye to her children. But then he sends them off to boarding school. Also very English. Also very English. But like I said before, her family is very much intertwined with the royals. I think it was mainly through her grandmother as well. Uh, she was trying to keep that kind of link alive between the two families. Diana was a bit of a, well, suspicious kid, I guess, too. She didn't like some of her nannies. She was worried that they were going to try and, like, marry her dad. She kind of terrorized them a little bit. And all along, her dad was quite distant and kind of more concerned with material things rather than, you know, making them feel, feel loved and wanted. So it was a very much the English kind of detached parenting style. Which upper, the upper class, the upper, the upper crust class. English. Yeah. Oh, my God. Did you guys know... Did you, have you ever seen, this is a side note, but it speaks to the same thing. When the queen had returned from one of her big tours, when Charles was like three, I think, when she returned and greeted him, she shook his hand. I mean, I was that probably was very that. affectionate coming from her. Right? So, I mean, this speaks to the kind of expected relationship between them, which... I, I can't imagine. I don't, I don't know if this is true of, about the royal family, but I suspect that their primary relationships are between them and their caregivers as opposed to their parents. It absolutely is. And, um, and to their grandmothers, like Charles had a very close relationship with like, the queen mother as opposed to his own mother. Diana, so her siblings were very good at lots of different things, like dancing, ringette, all those kinds of sports and, and uh, whatever they were involved in, they, were all, they all really excelled at it. And Diana was never really as good as any of them as anything else. So she was kind of living in the shadows. Um, but one thing that, that people noticed early on was that she had kind of a self-deprecating humor was one thing. But what that spoke to was more her like gift uh, to connect with people. And she was always seen as kind of very warm. And even in later in her life, when we see examples of her doing charity work, like she was just a natural at connecting with people. And like, for example, she could be at a party or an event and she would, it's like she would know how to find the loneliest looking person and go and talk to them. Like she really had a gift for connecting and probably because she understood that feeling. Like she understood feeling alone in a room full of people. 
Um, a stepmother, uh, an, not an evil stepmother, but you know, the trope goes, uh, comes in at one point. Uh, her name was Rain, I believe. And she was quite eccentric. I think there's a story of her showing up in like a massive ball gown to like a pool party one day or something. Like she was quite eccentric, uh, a little controlling, like opening presents around Christmas. They literally had to wait for her to like check on her clock that it was the exact moment that they were like allowed to then go and open their gifts. Like, so very bizarre. And um, Diana did not like her at all. But anyways, that was a very, I, I know later on in life, she, uh, Diana kind of resolved a lot of her, her issues with people in the sense that she understood, you know, this woman was just doing the best she could. I wasn't making it an easier on her. And um, she sort of saw the kind of the errors in her ways when she was a child and, and growing up. Where should we go next? I guess on to her meeting Charles. She's 16. Her sister, her older sister, Sarah, did you guys know that actually she was the one first dating Charles? I do, but only because I've seen one episode of The Crown. Right. And that yeah. was the episode in which it happened. Right. So first it was actually her, her older sister, Sarah, which I can't even imagine how that felt to then have her younger sister marry him afterwards. Um, but anyway. But it almost seems like such a business arrangement. It's true. That yeah. I, I don't even, I'm not even sure how much of that kind of the human emotions that we're used to, or you guys are used to anyway, being humans. <laughs> I'm not sure of how much of that human emotion is able to survive that, that bizarre interaction that is royal dating. Uh, uh, I, I'm just enjoying watching you both be so scandalized over yeah. <laughs> royal marriage arrangements. <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much they didn't actually love each other. Oh my gosh. No, but it's it's quite sad though. Because we're so, such romantics. And I know I, it's so adorable. I love it. I think Prince like Di, she was I think she was very much taken with him and I think she did think she loved him at the start. Uh, she had a crush on him. Like there's a famous interview where they're kind of asked about when they first met and how they how it went and he was like, Oh, you know, I thought she was charming and this and this and that and and she was like, oh, I was just so taken aback. And then I want, maybe it's when they first, when they were engaged and someone asked them, I was like, do you, do you love each other? Do you love each other? And she's like, of course I do. Of course I love him. And he says literally, whatever love is. I mean, he's got, he's not wrong. He's not wrong, but in a moment that's meant to be <laughs> like showing, their, showing this romance, he comes up with this very skeptical, you know, phrase. Uh, and I mean, I, again, I think she overlooked a lot of these things because she was just very hopeful that it would, that it would turn around. Of course, um, it must have been very awkward for Charles because he was, of course, in love with somebody else. Absolutely. Who was married to someone else. Oh, boy. So, yeah, he was always... Sorry. To... I'm sorry. This is one piece I never understood about this whole thing. Because these, these marriages are really business arrangements. They really and, are business I mean, yeah. They really are. And, and so my understanding always was you do the public thing and then you do the private thing privately. And it's everybody knows, well, everybody. I mean, within the royal family, I think, I, again, I have no evidence for any of this, but this is just my sort of cynical take on royal sexual relationships is that they have a public one and then they have private ones. And yeah, yeah, it's true. They and do. I, I just said, uh, Unless yeah. they're French, and then they can just have a bunch of public ones. That's true. <laughs> but so Charles, so there's a, there's 
a couple of things about Charles. So apparently there was some slush fund that was used to, well, allegedly used to pay out women who had maybe he had slept with or something. But what I heard is that actually was kind of a rumor that was made to make him look like this, like very eligible, like bachelor that everybody kind of wants a piece of. Um, Because he's not your image of an eligible bachelor. No, no. I I always feel bad for him. (laughs) Well, when he does. He does come true with that with Nathan's pug reference. I mean, when Nathan was talking about pugs, I was thinking about Prince Charles. Yeah, he's the result uh, of generations after generations of inbreeding. Yeah, he is. Uh, and I think when William was born, a reporter asked him who he looks like, and he's like, "Well, thank God he didn't. He doesn't look like me. He got his. He got his mom's looks." I think he said. And so Charles, as he was kind of dating, apparently, apparently, so this idea of private versus public. I think he was almost like more likely to have affairs or date women who were married because they could not be reported on. There's all this stuff in British like libel law, like even Camilla Parker, Camilla Parker Bowles before they were married was just always referred to in the press as his like good friend. Like they could never say that there was an affair because that newspaper or source could have been, could have been uh, taken to court over it. Now, for us in North America, that seems so bizarre that the, the press would have that kind of arrangement. So but, bizarre. Like, we don't have that sort of royal family. We have politicians, and we have no problem in tearing down our politicians. But because the royal family are supposed to embody the state itself, there's this sort of weird daintiness that you have to treat them. I mean, it I'm is- no royalist, to say the least. I think the whole thing is absolutely absurd. But yeah. it is bizarre to sort of observe. Oh, so many times as I was like reading stuff or listening stuff or watching stuff on Diana, I can't count the number of times that the question came into him to my head. Like, why, why do we have them again? Like, why do they exist again? Um, Cause it is such a strange setup. Okay. So where was I? So Camilla Parker Bowles, apparently her grandmother, I think was actually the mistress of his grandfather. Pugs. See, but there's a rumor that when they first met, she came up to him and was like, hey, so my grandmother was like your grandfather's mistress. What do you say? Um, and I don't know if that's true or not, but it is kind of a good first line. I, I got is it. it? I, was, I don't I think was, that, that I'm going to say right now that line wouldn't work on me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would ever use it, even if it were true. I, um, wow. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty creative. It's pretty crafty. So anyways, she was dating Andrew Parker Bowles as there was something still going on with Charles. And apparently when, when Charles found out that she was engaged to Andrew, he apparently like cried for days. Like he was, he was devastated. Um, but get this. So when this is how Camilla and Andrew got engaged, his parents announced it in the newspaper even before they were engaged. Oh, that's so romantic. No way, so then he was like, well, now I guess we have to get engaged since it's already been announced. And then he proposed to her. That's a good parental arm twisting right there. Uh, and that's what all of it is, right? And, and you can really see like, to Nathan's point about this putting on this, you know, front to the public. It's so bizarre that they would try and present these perfect, quote unquote, perfect marriages that were so deeply flawed and everybody knew it. Like, People knew he was in love with Camilla, yet really pushed Diana on, uh, you know, into this arrangement. And, and their, their dating was basically a series of tests, kind of. Like, 
I forget what their first date was. I think it was a hunting excursion. I think he went hunting and she went along with him. And then maybe their second date, I'm pretty sure his like grandmother was there the whole time or something. Like they were, they were. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And get this. She had to, she called him sir the whole time. I mean, I'm not going to kink shame. (laughs) I don't think that that was a kink for her. I think that was not a kink. I mean, maybe it turned into one. I don't know, but that was just the protocol. Also, I love how the uncover up has now turned into like the royal gossip hour. I am so down for this. <laughs> we need to do this more often. This is like, I was, Dish. I use this as an excuse to just like soak it all in. And at points I'm like, I'm not even taking notes. I don't care. I just want to listen. I'm spilling the royal tea. Can I just interject again with, I, I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I'm less scandalized than you guys are that they're not in love or that they love other people. <gasps> no. And, and, and I'm going to use as my evidence here that I think we all find it a bit weird when the royals actually do things for love. When King Edward VIII abdicates, mm-hmm. right? he abdicates because he wants to marry a woman who's not a royal. And but she was know, divorced too. Wasn't that part of the reason? Sorry? She was a divorcee? Like a, she was a divorcee. Like she divorce? wasn't a royal. He really wants to marry her. And he, you know, everyone's like, listen, you're the king. You have a responsibility, you have a duty, like just park it. He's like, no, no, I love her so much. I love her so much. So then he abdicates and goes, toodles off to some little island. I don't know, Corsica, I don't know what. Do you remember, what what year did he do that? 1934. 1934. So at a time when like the, the drums of war between like Germany and England and France are starting to already kind of start beating, yeah. And, and isn't, he abdicates I mean, for this woman who is a, a Nazi sympathizer. Was it 36? 36. That's even worse. Yeah. Don't oh, get me started on the royals. Was, yeah. Anyways, it was around there. Yeah. Okay. But um, whenever it was, it wasn't in, in the mid to late 30s. He abdicates. And I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of rolling my eyes here. You know, I'm like, really? For, for love? I'm sorry. I mean, I am actually a romantic, but I also feel like if you're the king or whatever, you don't get to have love. Yeah, but what if you you're don't want to be king? What if you're just born into that life and you don't want it? Yeah, I know. It sucks, right? But yeah. I, it's I also very hard for them to generate any sympathy. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> or abdicate, like, right at the beginning. Be like, this is not for me. Get my brother or, or sister or whatever. Abdicate right away and then go do your love thing. But I don't know. I, I just feel like, I almost expect them uh, to play these roles and to just behave. Sorry. So do they. That's what they expect too, Lee. So you're not yeah. alone in that. You guys are, are simpatico on that. Yeah. Um, okay. So Diana, though, true. Like, think about it too. She's young. She's like, well, 19, 20 when they get married. So she doesn't have like the kind of years of life to, to be jaded at that point, really. Or like she's had no real true romantic relationships to have to compare anything to. So she thinks this is all normal. She's being swept off her feet. Um, she's going to marry a prince. And she, so she did love him, or at least at the start, she had a crush on him that developed um, into more. And apparently when they really kind of clicked was on another occasion when I guess his grandfather had recent had recently passed away and then she saw him shortly after that 
And she said she really saw the sadness in his face and she empathized with him. And she, she said to him something along the lines of, you know, I think you need someone who can take care of you. Like, and, and uh, I listened to this great podcast called um, You're Wrong About, and they did an episode on this. And uh, the way I think one of them put it was, it was like she appealed to his sympathy for himself, which he really liked. Wow. You know, because it's, I mean, he's not a very likable figure in this whole scenario. Um, and he never really is. Uh, once they're married and together, he's often upset with her for like taking the spotlight off of him. And you have to imagine he's pretty messed up from his childhood too, like growing up with no, you know, no emotionality, no- Growing up with handshakes from your mom. Right, handshakes from your mom when you're just a wee one, you know, like at the same time I should sympathize with him, but it, it does, like you said, Nathan, it's very hard to sympathize with any of them really. I mean, they're still people, though. I guess we've got to remember that. They are still people. It's true. So the fairy tale marriage wasn't a fairy tale after all. Well, it was in that it wasn't true and that it was all made up. So in yeah. that sense, it was a fairy tale. Ooh. So they get married. They have this, by all, by all means, like what you can tell, it's this fairy tale wedding. Everyone in England is super pumped for the most part, right? There's like people are celebrating it. Apparently at one point before they get married, she's kind of voicing some concerns to one of her sisters. And her sister says, well, well, sweetheart, you're already on the dish towel. So you have to go through with it because all the like royal stuff had already been printed up, you know, in, in advance before the wedding, because she could tell, you know, in things like things he would say, like, you know, whatever love means anyways, or she started to suspect that there was something going on with Camilla and I think he even wore cufflinks that Camilla got him that are like CC, like Camilla and Charles, um, to the wedding. And then what really got her was she saw a necklace or like some sort of gift. And I think it was someone who was working at, at the palace or something was like, you don't want to see that. And she looked at it anyways. And it was like a necklace that had, they had, I forget what their nicknames for each other were. It was like Fred and, so, I can't remember what it was. They had nicknames for each other and it was those nicknames on the necklace. And they were like, are basically already engaged or married at that point. And so she knew that there was clearly something going on there. And again, she was so young. She didn't probably have the emotional uh, experience or capacity to, uh, to know how to handle this. I don't know if we're ever old enough to be able to handle that level of passive aggressiveness in jewelry. Right, right. I think one of the things that she tried to do maybe, I mean, it's always hard to psychoanalyze somebody who we've never met, but maybe in part because the marriage was so unsatisfying, she started throwing herself into a lot of charitable pursuits. And this, sort of, and this really sort of leaned into this idea of the people's princess because some of her causes included things like the removal of landmines because she had witnessed so many children in war-torn areas who had lost limbs from landmines that maybe had been there for years. Um, she Very early on, at a time when there was a ton of irrational fear towards people with HIV and AIDS, she was one of the very first people to come out. I mean, famously, she hugged a person who had AIDS, which these days doesn't seem like anything. But at the time, that was enormous. Yeah, at the time, the, the, there was questions about whether or not she was going to touch anyone it, when she was visiting them. And, and to do that, like you said, that was a huge thing to do at a time when it was so stigmatized. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone anyway, because she was one of the pugs. Yeah, 
And you're not yeah, supposed she, to touch people when you're a pug. She often be seen hugging people. Like she'd go to, to children's hospitals and hug kids there. And, and even the way she treated her own children was, was part of what endeared her so much to the public was because she didn't want to be without them. She wanted to hold them. She like struggled giving them over to the nannies at times when they were doing tours and events. Um, so she was very much seen as like this loving hands-on mother. And actually that's what really won over. So funnily enough, when, um, her and Charles went on this tour of Australia and New Zealand once they were married. That was at a time where I think their prime minister there was an anti-monarchist. And her, their visit moved, shifted public opinion over to loving the royals again because she was such a compelling and humanizing figure uh, that they had never experienced before on any of those like royal tours that they do. Yeah, because there isn't necessarily, again, they don't have a deep roster when it comes to sympathetic characters. You've got your Prince Andrew, who's off having parties with Epstein. You've got like the Queen Mum, who at that point was basically pickled from gin. You've got Charles and, and his sort of weird nonsense. And then Diana comes out and she's talking about having compassion for people who have contracted HIV and how we need to dismantle landmines. And it's like, oh, that's refreshing. That's nice. Yeah. Also refreshing was by 1992, both her and Charles had basically abandoned their marriage and were just concentrating on their affairs. And by their affairs, I don't mean their businesses, I mean their romantic affairs. Right, yeah, Diana was known to have a few, I can't remember, I can't remember all of their, like who they were. I think one was a bodyguard mm -hmm. that she had an affair with. But like Charles really would always go back to Camilla. In fact, part of, partly the reason like, the residence he lived in most of the time was the one that was like near Camilla. Sure. So there were times when if Diana was ever there, she'd leave and Camilla would arrive like 15 minutes later in her car. And so, yeah, Charles, it's true. They very much were kind of committed to not being together at a certain point, but it took a while for kind of the queen and the upper echelon to come around to saying, okay, okay, you can dissolve this because they did not want that to reflect poorly. They thought that, the marriage, the strength of a marriage reflected the strength of, of the royal family as a whole and the state. So they didn't want to see that crumble. But then by 1992, they were separated. And then by 1996, they were officially divorced. And so she was free of that. And then once being free of that, she was able to kind of follow her heart. And she starts dating a heart surgeon named Hasnat Khan in 1995 with a, a relationship that lasted about two years. And according to a lot of her friends, this was like, this was really love for her. Like she was head over heels for this guy. Uh, he was a surgeon, which appealed to sort of a lot of the stuff that she'd been doing in, in sort of the healthcare promotion and stuff like that. Um, but that relationship ends in 1997. And there's some debate about whether he ended it or whether she ended it. Again, her friends are a bit unclear yeah. on this, this matter. I think he was hoping that they could kind of take off and tour the world and help people. And he was like, I can't do that. Like my, my job is here. This is where I... This is where I want to stay. I think that was part of the kind of rift. And then she rebounds to uh, a man called Dodi Fayed, who is going to be incredibly important into this second part of the, of the podcast in which things are going to get even bleaker. And actually another point to that, I think that's also part of the reason they broke up was because she was seen in photos with Dodi Fayed and uh, he was not happy about that. Now, whereas Hasnat Khan was a, a heart surgeon, Dodi Fayed was more of a playboy. 
Like he was born extremely wealthy. Well, because his dad owned Harrods. His yeah, dad owned Harrods, right? Exactly. If you if you know London, or if you're listening in London, Harrods, which is actually a store I really enjoy going to back in the days when we could travel, it's it's like a massive. It's like the most English London store you can imagine. It's like we should probably give the dad's name though, because he's going to come up a lot. Yeah, Muhammad, Muhammad Al Fayed. Muhammad Al Fayed is the dad, and Dodi Al Fayed is the son. Who yeah. and actually, Muhammad would set up like little because Diana couldn't just go to Harrods and like do casual shopping like anyone else could. So he would set up times when she could come and kind of look around and have little you know try stuff on. And so that she had a very comfortable, familiar relationship with him. And that's how she was introduced to Dodie later, essentially, was through this family connection. And, and Dodie was an executive movie producer. That was, his, that was his deal. And again, there's some debate as to what degree uh, Diana and Dodie were like serious. Were they just having a good time? Was this something that they thought was going to be like, were they going to get married? Were they going to have kids? And all that is, of course, going to play into a lot of the conspiracy theories that we're going to have to get to. Because unfortunately, as we have moved on, we're approaching something. And what we're approaching is we're approaching the night of the 30th of August, 1997. And that, of course, is the famous night where Princess Diana, Dodi Fayed, are in that Mercedes hurtling through the streets of Paris. And so now that we've gotten there, unfortunately, now we have to actually go through that, the events of that night. So on the 22nd of August, Di and Dodi uh, fly to Nice to hang out on Dodi's family yacht. Uh, amongst the people who are there is their bodyguard, a guy called Trevor Reese Jones, who's also going to be important. On the 30th of August, Di, Dodi, and Reese Jones fly to Paris where they're met by the, uh, the deputy head of security who's employed by Mohammed uh, Al-Fayed at the Ritz Hotel in Paris. So now we have, basically we have our cast of characters. We've got Dai, we've got Dodi, we've got Reese Jones, the bodyguard, and we've got Henri Paul who meets them at the airport, deputy head of security at the Ritz Hotel owned by Al-Fayed. At this point, they are driven to... Um, one of the Al-Fayed's houses by a professional chauffeur, a guy called Philippe Dourneau. Then after that, after they stay there for a little bit, they go to the Ritz Hotel, which if you know Paris at all, it's, it's not that far from Louvre. It's, it's like right in the center. It's near the Seine. And uh, there's no incident. Everything seems fine. They get to the Ritz Hotel around 4.30, being driven by this professional chauffeur, Dourneau. Now, they stay there until 7 o'clock, at which point Diana and Dodie leave the Ritz, again driven by the professional chauffeur, Dorneau, and they go to El Fayed's apartment, and they're followed by paparazzi. Uh, it's not a big problem. I mean, they're, they're harassing them. Paparazzi, of course, are amongst the most irritating people that you can imagine. Well, and this is something that Di Diana would have, like, basically the moment she started dating... Prince Charles, she was then just followed everywhere by paparazzi, even where she worked at a school for a while, she'd have to come out and be like, okay, if I just let you take some pictures, can you like leave me alone for the rest of the day? And apparently they even at one point set up, they rented a, an apartment across from her apartment in London and there's photos of her like washing her dishes through her kitchen window. So it's something that really plagued her for her whole life in the spotlight. 
this actually might be something that our, our millennial listeners and our, our Gen Y listeners might be confused by, but privacy used to be a thing that people would care about. Like I find that my students, it's weird to them when, right. when, when we talk about privacy, they're like, yeah, but we like to post our lives online anyway. Right. But back then in the olden days, people had this sort of old fashioned idea that some stuff was just for you and not everyone deserved access to it. Hmm. And what the paparazzi's job was, was to take those private moments and then give them to the world against your will. I think that what also matters in that is who's doing the posting. Like Mm -hmm. if I post pictures of myself on my Facebook or Instagram account, that's one thing. If you had either of those, which you do not. If I had either of those, there's a reason I don't because I am kind of maniacal around privacy. But then it is a different thing if I start secretly taking pictures of Nathan, you know, through his condo window and posting those on his account or, you know, that gets weird. And that is, I think it's a lack of control as much as anything. There is something horrifying about fame. Like on the one hand, it seems like something, it's that double-edged sword. And we've seen it a bunch of times. We saw it with Marilyn Monroe. We see it anytime we talk about a famous person to a degree with Kurt Cobain. On, on the one hand, fame is something that you crave. And on the other hand, once you get fame, it's a bit of a curse. Mm-hmm. And Nathan, can I ask you a question too? Is there not a rumor that at some point on that day, Dodie had gone to um, a jewelry store and picked up an engagement ring? Yeah. In fact, there is evidence that he went to a jewelry store and picked up a ring, whether it was an engagement ring, that was a bit open to interpretation. Because I've seen, I've heard different things. I've heard, yes, it was a ring. I thought maybe in one of the reports they said, no, it was like a watch or something. Um, So I've heard conflicting things on that as well. It was definitely jewelry. Yeah. But whether it was an engagement ring, that in fact, we'll probably never know. So at this point, it's it's seven o'clock. Everything's still fine. Diana and Dodie are being driven around by a professional chauffeur, still Dorno. They go to Al-Fayed's apartment. The paparazzi are being annoying and they're following them, but it's not that big a deal. Dorno is a professional and he can handle it. And at this point, Henri Paul, who is the deputy head of security, he goes home for the day. Because at this point, Diana and Dodie have left the Ritz Hotel, which is owned by Al-Fayed. Henri Paul is an employee of Mohammed Al-Fayed. But because they've left the hotel, it's okay for Henri Paul, the deputy head of security, to just, he goes home. Yeah, like his job had been to just get them to the Ritz from the airport. Yeah. That was basically his task. His, his, his day, he thinks, is done. Uh, so then at 9.30, they leave the apartment to go to dinner at Chez Benoit. Uh, Dorno is still driving, everything's still, still fine. Dodie tells Dorno that the plans have changed. Now, I'm being very specific about the timing here because the timing is actually sort of crucial. At 9.30, Dodie tells Dorno to take them back to the Ritz instead. And of course, Dorno does. At 9.50, they arrive at the Ritz. Now, the staff wasn't expecting them, and so they weren't prepared for it. The paparazzi, who had still been lingering around, now they have basically full access, and they're swarming, and it's chaos. And so the staff at the hotel calls Henri Paul to return. They call the deputy head of security and they're like, listen, you need to come back to the hotel because for some reason, Dodie and Diana came back to the hotel. So he comes back, he arrives at 10 o'clock. I think they returned because they were getting hounded wherever they tried to eat in multiple places and they were just getting like hounded wherever they were by paparazzi and interest. So they were like, forget it. Let's just go back and have our privacy, at least in our hotel room. But then after staying at the Imperial Suite for a while at about 1220 a.m., Diane and Dodie leave the hotel again. 
Now, they leave via the back exit. Henri Paul is now the driver. Dorno's been driving around all day. He's been dealing with paparazzi. He's been taking them to and fro. He is a professional chauffeur. He's, he's exceptionally well-trained. But now Dorno is out front in a decoy car. And the person who's going to be driving the Mercedes is Henri Paul, not a chauffeur. The, the deputy head of security and an employee of Alfaya, but not a trained chauffeur. In fact, he's used to driving uh, a little Austin Mini. He isn't used to driving a Mercedes. Henri Paul, is, he's behaving a little strangely. We have a lot of footage of this. He seems like the, the plan immediately fails. There are already paparazzi at the back exit. And Paul taunts the paparazzi before heading out and says something along the lines of, you're never going to catch me. And at this point, we have the last photograph taken by the paparazzi of these four car occupants taken through the front window. So Paul takes off with Reese Jones in the front seat and Dodie and Diana in the back seat. He drives along the embankment road, which is, it goes along the, the north side of the Seine. At high speed, he's pursued by the paparazzi. They're in cars, they're on motorcycles, they're taking pictures, there's flash bulbs going off. But... I mean, they're in an extremely high-powered Mercedes, and they're able to outrun the paparazzi. Now, at some point, for some reason, we have Henri Paul turning into and underneath the uh, Pont d'Alma, the, uh, the Alma Bridge, basically. Now, we know from the forensics that as this happens, the Mercedes clips a white Fiat Uno, which is a tiny little, light, cheap, underpowered Italian, like... Econo box car, basically. At that point, the Mercedes loses control, crashes into the 13th pillar of the bridge. Dodi and Henri Paul were killed immediately. The paparazzi catch up to the accident and start taking photographs of the accident and of the bodies. Now, under the bridge, is it not uh, a bit like kind of a downhill plus a turn? Well, I mean, it's, it's, not that, it's not that steep a turn. This is a, this is a tunnel that goes underneath the Seine River. So it's, fairly, it's a fairly long tunnel. It's fairly well lit, um, but there's nowhere to go. Like yeah. you have a cement wall on one, hand, on one side, and then in between the two lanes, you've got these pillars. And it's into one of those pillars that the car crashes and the car is basically destroyed. But isn't it also one of those situations where if you were going at a certain speed, which I think he was going at like, 100 miles an hour or something like that by that point. There's some, again, there's a lot of debate about how fast the car was going. There were right. some rumors that the uh, speedometer had pegged at like 160 kilometers an hour. That turned out not to be true. And Mercedes engineers said, yeah, and in an accident, the speedometer reverts to zero anyway. So right. that, was, that was discarded. They think probably based on the skid marks and the destruction of the car, it was probably going at 65 miles an hour. Now, right. I know this I know this area really well. I spend a lot of time in this area of Paris. That is way too fast for that stretch. Way too fast. Now, we have some witnesses to this crash. Traveling the other direction when the Mercedes crashes under the Seine, under the bridge, are Benoit Bourra and Gaia Lostis. They're traveling uh, the other way. And what they see is they see the Mercedes out of control. In front of the Mercedes, they see another car driving in front of the Mercedes. They said that that other car was driving normally. It wasn't trying to block the Mercedes. It wasn't pulling any weird maneuvers. It was just sort of driving at a normal appropriate speed. After the crash, that leading car keeps driving. 
Now, we also know who was in that car. It was Mohammed uh, Majidi and Suad Mufakir. And according to their testimony, they saw flashes of light in the rearview mirror. And when they looked, they saw the Mercedes out of control and then crash. They also state that there was no other car in between them and the Mercedes. And they also admitted to driving off afterwards. Now, we also have a witness named Francois Levistre. Now, he claims that he saw a motorcycle pass Mercedes, flash a bright light, and then pull over after the crash, look into the wreckage, and then make a signal like a referee counting out a KO'd boxer, as if to saying, like, they're out. Uh, he also claimed that he found bullet casings. And a lot of the conspiracy theory that, that I've heard about this event are based on this account that there were motorcyclists, like trained assassin motorcyclists who, who flashed a strobe light, which then caused the confusion, which then caused the car to crash. However, none of the other witness testimony matches up with La Vistra. There was the account of the occupants of the car in front of the Mercedes who had also reported seeing a flash of light in the rearview mirror, but that was more likely to have been caused by the headlights of the Mercedes sort of wildly skewing back and forth as the car went out of control. And he provided like three different accounts to investigators and was sort of a, a sketchy person to begin with, who was a bit of a con artist and somebody who had tried to cash in on this story a number of times. And be, because his testimony doesn't match up to the other testimony and actually doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. If you're a trained assassin, you're not going to stop your bike, get off your bike, like make a big arm gesture showing everybody, I killed these guys. Well, especially with mul- like numerous paparazzi around. Yeah, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and so then at this point, uh, there are some onlookers who have seen this. An ambulance is called. The paparazzi are still gathering around taking pictures. Well, it, it doesn't seem that the paparazzi interfered with help getting there. They also didn't help themselves. Well, they did help themselves. They helped themselves to a bunch of photographs of this. Weren't, of this maybe, weren't um, seven or so of them charged with manslaughter for a while? They, they had to go to trial. Yeah, they were arrested. Yeah. Uh, they were rounded up and arrested pretty quickly after this. Uh, now, of course, this is another part of the conspiracy aspect. Diana is put into an, an ambulance. So Diana is taken to Pitié-Sopatrière Hospital, Hôpital, Uh, And it takes about 43 minutes for the ambulance to get there. Now, this is one of the key aspects of the conspiracy theory, because that is not a 43-minute drive. That's like a 10-minute drive tops, especially at that time of night, especially if you're an ambulance. And so a lot of people became extremely suspicious by the fact that it took so long. And she died in the ambulance, didn't she? She dies in the ambulance. And not only does she die in the ambulance, but they go past another hospital on the way to Pitié-Salpêtrière, which is yeah. also evidence that people point to to say, why? Why did it take so long? And why did they go past that hospital to go to this hospital? I thought she died at the hospital because they got to the hospital, I think, at like two in the morning, but they didn't pronounce her officially dead until maybe four or something. Well, this is the thing. Surprisingly, being dead is actually a bit of a gray area. Right. Like, you know, if somebody is unresponsive versus when they're brain dead versus when they're officially declared dead. Right. Oops. Sorry, I just wanted to interject, though, that with each conspiracy, you get some claim that becomes really compelling. You know, the, the, the flag cannot, or the flag waving in a vacuum. 
You Jet fuel doesn't of, melt steel beams. Exactly. There, there's usually one claim that becomes really seductive. And this, for me, when I heard about this, I mean, I just dismissed the conspiracy story out of hand until I heard this claim. And I was like, oh, dear, this is inconvenient. <laughs> I mean, it's a question that should be asked, for sure. Why did it take so long? Why didn't they go to the other hospital? Because the hospital is like 10 kilometers away from the crash site, like something relatively close. It's, it's, it's not that long a drive. But I mean, well, the explanation is really simple for it, though, in the end. Yes, yeah, the explanation is that uh, under like French protocol, you're supposed to try to stabilize the injured person in the ambulance before you move them. Mm-hmm. The reason that uh, they took her to that hospital and not the closer hospital is that the closer hospital just was not prepared for this kind of, to deal with this kind of accident. They didn't have the personnel, they didn't have the equipment. It wouldn't have made any sense to go to that hospital. So when you look into it, there are some things that make sense. However, there are still clearly some suspicious aspects to this whole event. And so why don't we go into some of those? First of all, we should state at this point, what is the conspiracy that is being asserted here? Lee, do you want to go or do you want me to go? I can give it a shot. I mean, as I understand it, there's a number of different conspiracies that are asserted around her death and, and they have actually morphed over time. The original conspiracy um, started by um, Dodi's dad, Mohammed Al-Fayed, is that uh, the royal family killed her mm-hmm. because she was um, going to marry her son. She was pregnant. It was going to be a potential you know, Muslim heir to the throne, not a direct one, but way too close for anybody's liking. That, that was essentially the story. It has morphed and expanded to include things like well, maybe uh, the Prince of Edinburgh, uh, that's the Queen's husband, was centrally involved. Maybe Prince Charles was centrally involved. Maybe it was because she was, uh, her work on landmines was going to cause trouble for the royal family's interests in Angola. There was even a conspiracy that developed later that it had something to do with, the, uh, with her lobbying around Palestinian rights, which actually, interestingly, doesn't emerge as a conspiracy theory in the late 90s because the peace process in the Middle East looked like it was going to work. And it only becomes a conspiracy once that peace process falls apart. And then there was this notion that maybe it was that. Anyway, so to summarize it all, I guess, is that it's not an accident. It was planned. It was planned probably by the royal family and, um, you know, in conjunction with the Secret Service, the paparazzi, um, agents, provocateurs inside the car even. So, but the, the, the broad claim is this was no accident. This was done deliberately. Yeah, right, and Di herself had made claims to that effect too. Um, because there's a famous letter, there's, right? There's a famous letter, and there's also her former bodyguard and lover, Barry Manneke, he had died in a road accident at some point, but Di thought he had been offed. And she had had a previous, I think, malfunction of her brakes once when she was driving and and became kind of paranoid that this was part of a plan. Do either of you have the key phrase of that letter in front of you? Because she says that she thinks Prince Charles is going to manufacture a car accident, which will kill her or Or cause serious head injury. Yeah. 
Now, let's, let's go through all of this. This is a lot. So let's go through all of it. Let's start off with the motivation of the royal family that they didn't want her to marry Dodi, and so this was the reason this assassination took place. Uh, a few things about that. We don't know for sure whether she was that serious about Dodi. They mm-hmm. hadn't been dating that long. All the stuff about her being engaged or being pregnant, a lot of that is sort of based on sort of hearsay or speculation. And a lot of her friends made the claims that she wasn't that serious about Dodi and that she was definitely not pregnant. As far as the racism angle, I mean, we have seen plenty of evidence because of the introduction of Meghan Markle to the royal family that, yes, racism is a serious issue within the royal family. I don't think that can be denied. But there is something that I do find sort of confusing about this. Recall that before Diana had this sort of fling with Dodi, she had an extremely serious relationship with Hasnat Khan. And Hasnat Khan was of Pakistani background. He was also Muslim. And there didn't seem to be any kind of backlash from the royal family about that. Where, mm-hmm. and, and that seemed like a far more serious relationship. So if they, weren't, if they weren't worked up about it when she was dating Hasnat Khan, why did they become worked up about it when she had a much shorter term relationship with Dodi Al-Fayed? Can I also come back to the claim that she was potentially going to marry Dodi Al-Fayed? There's sure. only one person who has maintained that, and that's his dad, Mohammed Al-Fayed. Besides his testimony, there is zero evidence anywhere that she was going to marry him. And there was, it's not just that her friends claim that she wasn't pregnant. There was a post-mortem done on her and there is no sign of pregnancy. Uh, And of course, if you're already assuming that the French secret service and the British secret service are working together to assassinate her, then obviously they would have gotten to the coroner as well. This is true. And they would have had to also get to the stewardess on the yacht that they were using because apparently uh, Diana was, was, um, what's the term for it? Uh, The stuff you use to not get pregnant. Birth control pills. Birth control. (laughs) Birth control. There was was evidence of birth control on the nightstand. So, so, I mean, a lot of that sort of compelling speculation about cause... Yeah, none of it seems to hold up that well. Now, the letter is interesting because she does write that letter to her butler, Paul Burrell, saying, I believe that they're going to uh, cause a car accident and, and have me either badly injured or killed so that Charles will be free to marry Camilla. No, but it's not Camilla. That's the thing. So that part is actually blacked out and it doesn't say Camilla, but the tr- okay. it actually said to, so he could marry Tiggy, who was actually one of the nannies. So she was just paranoid about that nanny relationship. Um, It wasn't even about- From her own childhood. Yeah, from her own childhood, right? Now, here's Um, the interesting thing about this letter. A lot of people have asked the question, okay, is this letter a forgery? And I've looked at it, people who are way smarter than me have looked at it, and people have have landed basically on the idea that, yeah, this is probably a legitimate letter. But there's something about this that I, I find interesting, and I think sort of important to talk to about our understanding of risk and probability. Because- what are the chances that somebody writes a letter saying that she's afraid that they're going to have a faked car crash? What are the chances that that person gets into a real car crash? The answer, of course, is exactly the same chance of anyone else getting into a car crash. Mm -hmm. 
writing a letter saying you're worried about somebody faking a car crash doesn't make you less likely to get into a real car crash. It doesn't make you immune from that happening to you. But because of the way our brains work, because we hate coincidences, we think if somebody says something like that, then it all, all of a sudden, if she does get into a car crash, it's not because car crashes happen. It's because, oh no, this must be because she yeah. called it earlier. And that's a really good point, Nathan. I, I want to I press this a bit further too. Let's say, I mean, I, I think the letter is genuine. What does the letter prove? Like in the most conspiratorial reading of this letter, what does the letter prove? I don't understand. All it really proves is her mindset. Well, let's say, but what do the conspiracists think that it proves? I mean, it, 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 is she psychic? Right. Is that what we're saying? Like, does she know what's going to happen to her? Is she preparing the plans? Like, is there some hapless killer who's like, I wonder how I'm going to do this. And oh, look, secretly somehow I've gotten a hold of this letter and she's got a really good plan. So maybe I'll do that. It doesn't, I don't, I don't actually get what it's, it's supposed true. to prove. You're right. It doesn't act as evidence of any sort. It's like like if she had said somebody within the security apparatus has gotten wind of a plot by uh, Prince Charles to kill me. Right. Okay. Now, if that is what happened, wouldn't you put that in the letter? Isn't that like a seriously important piece of information? It doesn't, so I, that's what I don't get here. And I find this about most of the evidence um, in the Princess Diana case is that even in its most conspiratorial reading, I can't see it. I, I just don't see it. Well, now there, there's still other evidence though that, and the evidence, it, Lee was sort of won over initially by the length of time it took to get to the hospital. The thing that made me suspicious was the idea that there were, I had always heard that there were 14 CCTV cameras in the tunnel and that none of them were working and all of them were switched off. No, that's not Which entirely not true, right? It, it isn't true that that was the case. If you follow the path that they took, and we know what that path is, there's basically 10 cameras out in the street in between when they left the hotel and when they crashed in the bridge. Now, those were not traffic cameras. Those were private security cameras. So they weren't aimed at the street. They were aimed at the front of buildings and of stores because obviously that's where you want your security camera aimed. There was a traffic camera at the bridge, but, and as someone who spends a lot of time in France, I completely understand this next part. Everyone who works at the Paris Urban Traffic Unit goes home at 11 o'clock p.m. The, the French are not huge into overtime. Mm -hmm. They take their work weeks extremely seriously. And so there's nobody sort of keeping track of that camera after 11 o'clock. So it wasn't yeah. broken. It was just too late for it to be operating. Uh, the other thing, and here's the thing that for me sinks this conspiracy. And this is why I wanted to read that poem at the beginning, this idea that huge events can have tiny causes. Like so much of this evening was planned by Dodi Al-Fayed. The idea to go back to the Ritz rather than Chez Benoit, that was Dodi's idea. Uh, the idea to take a third car from the back exit rather than using their professional chauffeur from the front, that was Dodi's idea. The idea to use Henri Paul as the driver, that mm -hmm. was Dodi's idea. So if you're trying to assassinate Princess Di this evening, you're basically scrambling because Dodie keeps changing plans and is sort of going on his whims. The other thing, the other 
like there's a few contributory causes, I think, to this crash. And one of them we've already talked about, the paparazzi, the, the constant hounding of the paparazzi. But now we have to return to Henri Paul. Mm-hmm. Because basically for this conspiracy to work, either Doty has to be in on it, which doesn't make any sense, or Henri Paul has to be in on it, which maybe makes a bit more sense. Now, of course, Henri Paul is killed in the crash, which sort of makes it harder to believe that he was in on this. The other thing is that Henri Paul doesn't know that he's going to be driving them until about 10.30 at night, which means that, again, even if he's in on it, he would have had to have set up this entire thing basically in the course of a few minutes because we have footage of him at the hotel. We have footage of Henri Paul at the hotel. We know where he was and who he was talking to. There's only about a nine-minute window where we don't know what he was up to. And for him to have managed to organize this entire thing in that nine-minute window seems simply impossible. Uh, the other thing we know, know about what Henri Paul was... Sorry? We also know that he had had a couple of drinks at the hotel and we know his blood alcohol levels after because of autopsy. Yeah, he left the Ritz at seven o'clock because again, remember, he thought that his day was done. He was seen drinking at a local bar, the Bar du... Oh, French. <laughs> the Bar du Bourgnon at 7.30. He was seen by a, by a friend, uh, Claude Roulet. Uh, there was another bartender at another bar nearby who testified. Uh, this is Jean-Cien Letellier. She says that uh, he stopped in for a drink at her bar as well around 10 when he got the phone call that he was needed. And when he got back to the Ritz, we also have evidence that he was drinking fairly heavily then. Henri Paul's friends all said afterwards that he wasn't much of a drinker. However, his doctor, Dominique Mello, testified that Paul had actually been suffering from depression following a breakup, and he had been medicating himself with solo drinking at home to the mm-hmm. point where he had asked the doctor to prescribe him a medication, an anti-alcohol drug, that if he took would make alcohol sort of, it would give you a violent reaction. Mm-hmm. Now, they did find a bunch of alcohol in his system, about three times the legal limit, but they didn't find any of that anti-alcohol drug in his system at that time. Can I also give you my, the thing, the piece of information that killed this conspiracy dead for me, where I'm like, this, this cannot have been a planned uh, hit was the whole thing rests on her not wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. Like if your entire plan to kill somebody rests on them not taking the elementary measures to keep them safe, then that's a really bad plan because most people, I don't even think about putting on my seatbelt when I get in the car, right? I mean, it's just an automatic thing. So there's that and the fact that they almost didn't hit the barrier. It was a question of inches, like, and by inches, I'm not saying like 90 inches. It's a question of like one or two inches, whether that car was just going to glance the barrier or whether it was going to have a massive crash. If it had glanced the barrier, that they would have kept going, probably come to a full stop. Nothing would have happened. Certainly no fatal crash. If she had worn her seatbelt, it like, uh, who's the survivor? Uh, The survivor was uh, Reese Jones. And he survived because he wore a seatbelt. Yeah, he was in the front seat. In the front seat, which is worse. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I think this is such an important point. There were so many, and this is, and this gets back to my poem. For the want of a nail, the kingdom is lost. Like there's such tiny little things that we, like we, the world is so chaotic and made up of such tiny little things, but those tiny little things can have a huge impact. 
the decision to go back to the hotel rather than going to the restaurant. A tiny little decision, huge impact. Not wearing seat belts. The driver deciding to have a few drinks. Not going with their professional chauffeur. Mm-hmm. Like all of these tiny little, tiny little causes. And not, because, not deciding to stay at the Ritz. Not deciding to stay at the Ritz. There was like a 50-50. It was like, should we go? Should we not go? Yeah, they're all insignificant little causes. Basically, the loss of a nail in a horseshoe. But the thing is, we want an event as terrible and as tragic as this to have these great, impressive causes. But the truth is, the world is so chaotic that a collection of tiny, little, insignificant, contributory causes can very easily lead to a world-changing event like this. I mean, most of the 20th century was, was sort of set into its horrifying motion because, because a car broke down in front of a, a sandwich shop. That being World War I, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was also the inquiry into it, right, that was really sort of driven by Mohammed Al-Fayed, and they concluded that there was no conspiracy, it was a tragic accident that really came down to the speed of the driver, the impairment of the driver, and the speed and the driving of the paparazzi, too, like that whole combination that just ended in, in tragedy. Yeah. This, this is actually a piece of this whole narrative which, which really kind of annoyed me the more I looked into it. Elena, you're right, that, that whole inquiry took all of the conspiracy claims really seriously. It then sort of spawned a kind of judicial event where basically the conspiracy theories were tried in court in front of a jury. The entire proceedings with the um, Operation Paget and Paget, whatever, and um, the court case, my understanding is, came to eight million pounds, over eight million pounds. Wow. Um, it was like, you know, many years investigating this stuff. And at the end of it, and you can read some of the court proceedings, it's quite startling that because it's Mohammed uh, Al Fayed who is, um, I guess, the, uh, um, the prosecutor. In a sense, that's plaintiff. He'd be the plaintiff. He'd be the, the one plaintiff. who is who is. So he's the one. His team is bringing forward the case, and his the the top lawyer, whose name is Mansfield, I think. I'm sorry, I have it in my notes, but I can't find it quick enough. I have to totally backtrack. I have to admit publicly that there is simply not any evidence. And what I find is so frustrating in in learning about the development of this conspiracy theory is it starts with two people. It starts with Mohammed Al-Fayed and another guy who we haven't talked about at all, quite a character in his own right, recently died. His name is Lyndon LaRouche and he has been a a presidential candidate in every election going back since the 70s. He is a far left political theorist who is very given to conspiracy theories, including the fact that he believes the royal family is the head of the global drug cartel, the business and drug trafficking. Like That's his claim. He wrote an article in a very serious sounding journal called the Executive Intelligence Review, basically expounding this conspiracy theory. I looked into Executive Intelligence Review and it is a not very serious a journal article that makes itself look very serious and finally found it by <laughs> Lyndon LaRoche, who publishes this article in it. it. Between him and 
uh, Dodi's dad, Mohammed Fayyad. These are the two real sources of most of the conspiracy stuff. They funnily use each other as sources. So the executive review cites um, Mohammed Al-Fayed. Mohammed Al-Fayed cites the executive review, both reinforcing each other. And what happens is you have not very serious books that sell a huge amount, TV shows, web posts, uh, online articles, all of which have a very, very low bar for a standard of truth. I mean, you know, a lot of television shows do not vet the experts they bring on. A lot of blog posts and all of that kind of stuff have zero credibility. Most of this stuff was just rehashing these, these conspiratorial claims, sometimes adding it was about the Palestinians or it was about landmines or about Angola. Um, maybe it was Prince Charles more than uh, Prince Philip. But really, they were all just citing each other, all just rehashing the same old stuff. And here's the thing to Elena's point. Once you actually have to prove it, like once the bar for proof got beyond just say whatever you feel like in the latest tabloid edition, because it sells well, because it's about Princess Diana, once that bar of truth was established at what's your evidence, prove it, whereas anything, every single claim, from the fact that she wanted to marry him to the fact that she was pregnant to the you know, the CTV cameras were switched off to um, the driver was a Mossad operative, you know, <laughs> every one of these claims falls flat. And I, 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 I will say that Henri Paul probably did have some intelligence connections. If he did, I, I'm, I'm going to... Because, because he was the head of security at yeah. a hotel in Paris... He's absolutely going to have some... A fancy hotel. Like it's What's happen. interesting, though, is... What is, again, what's the evidence for the actual, like, where's the proof for it? Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like, again, this works more like a Rorschach test where you know, the inkblot thing, where you just kind of see what, what it is you're looking for. Um, because what intelligence service is he working for? You, know, you got French intelligence, British yeah. intelligence. I mean, probably, he was probably supplying the odd bit of intelligence to the French intelligence services. Like, mm -hmm. if you've ever been to a hotel, a fancy hotel in a big city, there was going to be somebody working there who was going to be connected in some way to the intelligence agencies of that country. I mean, it's just how it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's sinister. It means that they were probably paying him to, you know, inform them about comings and goings and maybe even a little bit of a blackmail material. I, so for me, I got to say, even if he were, because if he were like, because of course the claim is not simply he works for intelligence, but that, this intelligence, whatever organization it was, was behind in some nefarious way her killing. Then we come back to, well, what? So he's like a suicide agent for French intelligence who on the behest of the head of the global drug cartel is going to off somebody who's causing trouble with their interests in Angola. I mean- And, and kill himself in the meantime. Yeah, right? I mean, ultimately, I think that, I think we just lost Lee. Lee just, just Lee just disappeared. Yeah. Oh man, imagine if the royal family got him. <gasps> they heard you, Lee. Lee just vanished from the Zoom call. He did. So if we never hear from Lee again, <laughs> let I, I just want to say it's been great working with him. That's so he's he's wonderful. I mean, he will he be missed. Wonderful. He will be missed. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the royal family has gotten up to some super sketchy stuff. Yes. And we could do a ton of episodes on like genuine things that the royal family has gotten up to. 
I oh, don't yeah. think I don't think they did this though. I don't think they did it either. I think it was just a tragic event that, like you said, we want we don't we want a reason. We don't like chaos. We want to know why this very sympathetic, beautiful person was taken from us in this sudden way, right in the prime of her life. Yeah, and unfortunately, the answer is terrifying. The answer is awful things can happen to good people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> we always we always manage to to end on a high note. Oh, you know what? Lee's back. I'll just let Lee back in. He says it will inevitably take five minutes. Oh, his computer lost power. That's very he, suspicious. He just, it is very suspicious. Now, how do we know this is even Lee? We've got someone else showing up here. Yeah, is this a clone? No, was but he wearing this shirt before? Me. I don't think you he was. How you know it's me is because I'm arguing for the mainstream version. They would only they would only do away with me if I was like, yeah, 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 she was actually killed uh, by conspiratorial elements. Mm, he makes a good point, I guess, unless he's just trying to build our trust. <laughs> so tune in for further episodes to find out if this is the real Lee or not the real Lee. Yeah. In the meantime, secret agent. In the meantime. Um, you can email us. We're always happy to hear from people at podcast at the uncoverup.com. Oh, first try. Amazing. Yeah. Maybe I'm not me. Oh, and come on, find our, in our Instagram too. say hello, interact, like things. That would be awesome. And if you subscribe, if enough of you subscribe, as soon as the pandemic is over, I have to get a tattoo. You have to get your, you have to find your tattoo artist now though and get on the list. Because oh, it's going to be such a lineup. That's true. Yeah.